how can I have spiritual integrity with my sex life, you know? And like, that doesn't have to look like I'm a fucking Puritan. So that's why I mean, I'm curious to ask other people about what their experience is with it, you know? What does their, what does others healing look like? Everybody, this is Rose. And this is Louisa. And you're listening to Sober Sex. I made a promise to myself to stop not listening. What it looks like now is that I make conscious choices around my sexuality. It started with putting down the substances, really, and starting to listen. And the listening to my body has changed. Kate Marlene is an American author, podcaster, and artist living in Berlin. She is also a narrative therapist and social justice advocate focused on individual and community healing. It was a pleasure to have her on Sober Sex today where we got to talk about so many parts of recovery, including her journey to sobriety, which is really unique, but also I think incredibly relatable. So we hope that you love this conversation as much as I loved having it. Welcome to Sober Sex. Anything fun? Of course. There's always fun stuff when it's not, when it. When you're not recording, then you catch something. So, where <laughs> yeah. are you? I am. Uh, so I recently moved to the French countryside, and this is the studio slash guest house that's deeply unfinished, and it's also the laundry room. <laughs> oh my so. gosh! Good for you. It's, yeah, it, Paris is intense. So yeah, you you just. I mean, well, this is like we're jumping in. Hello, um, you just Hi. got back from a, a couple <laughs> days in Paris, yeah. Yeah, we were there um, Friday to Tuesday, yeah. just like a long weekend. Um, it was one of these crazy, like, you know how now that the airports are like reopening and people are like actually traveling after COVID and Brandenburg's like only been open just this year and it's like totally ill-equipped. Our flight got delayed <laughs> and then canceled and oh, my we God. had to like, yeah, we had to like come back at two in the morning and then like take the flight again at three in the afternoon. And I actually didn't even want to go. I was like, this is just too much. So yeah. Like, especially yeah. if you're only going for three days, you're like, this is too much stress. No, thank you. No, I didn't want to go. I've been there a couple times too. Like my first like college boyfriend was French. And so we had stayed in Paris as kids, you know, I mean 20, but it felt That's like so, so long ago. And then he was there actually when I was there. So I had this like reunion with my old French boyfriend. So that was kind of funny. That's cute. Was it fun? Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's kind of sad. You know, you like look at the yeah. person, we're definitely like 40, you know what I mean? Like, it's been 20 years. And it's not him, like, he's super handsome. It was just more like, like, well, like, babe, but like, damn time, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. I mean, at least, like, especially also, I think, kind of pre sobriety exes are always interesting if they have not, in fact, gotten sober or. <laughs> You're just like, yeah. hmm, interesting how your life went. <laughs> no shade, no shade, no shade. But yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, he's one of them. He's a normie, so right on track. One of those. Uh, bless. Yeah. <laughs> how unfair. It's a different life. <laughs> um, so now, now backtracking. First thing first, first what are your pronouns? <laughs> um, so my pronouns are she, her, or they, them. I'm open to both. Awesome. She, her, I mean, but honestly, like I get, I get misgendered a lot. It turns out like, I'm not sure what's up with that. Yeah. So it's kind of anything goes at this point, but, um, 
because we love easy, simple questions, what is your experience of gender today? You know, I don't think that's an easy question. And no, I, I think, was being sarcastic. Yeah, okay, good. Because I was like, I feel like that was the hardest question I felt like. Of all time. At. Yeah, and you know, I've, I've actually been thinking about it like the last, you know, few hours, like where... I mean, I, I don't know if you wanted to put this in the podcast that, yeah. you, that you sent me the questions. And yeah, when totally. I saw that one, I thought, I don't know how I'm going to answer that. And I think because, you know, I'm, I'm cis, I've been like primarily straight, like I actually identify as bisexual now, but that took a long time of being like, is that just messing around or was that a girlfriend? You know, was I just drunk or was, am I bisexual basically? And um, also being married. And so for me, like, in some ways, I don't interrogate gender the way I would if I was not cis or if I was not straight, you know, or bisexual. So it was something that I feel like, I mean, it's a longer story, really, about, like, learning to understand gender, identify it, and for myself, like, becoming a burlesque dancer and learning how to embrace femme without shame and being okay about, like, when I was a kid, I was always like wanting to wear dresses and be super glamorous. And then as I got older, I started to question that, right? Like, is this feminist? Is this something that I can really um, embody and still be feminist, right? So I think to you that I was a lawyer, I was like a social activist, I worked for the ACLU. And during that time, like, especially in law school, I was like, okay, uh, I'm going to cut off all my hair, you know, be androgynous for the sake of androgyny being more empowered or something. And I felt like, it sounds strange, but I just felt like I lost my sparkle. You know, it was kind of like, okay, I'm going to slip into this identity because this is more political. This is more um, authentically activist, like being non non-femme basically yeah a lot of undoing like (laughs) especially because I feel like femme is inherently kind of sexualized a lot and that doesn't necessarily mean like if that's the energy that you're putting out or if it's just like that's how we're kind of socialized to be like oh like a kind of performative or display of any kind of femininity is somehow like sexual which is fucked up you know it's true I mean it's I never thought of it that way but of course right I mean it's like even burlesque. I mean, there's a sexuality to that. There's sexuality sort of inherent in some of these presentations of femininity, like, you know, the corsets. And I mean, I have breast implants, which is a whole nother story because during that time, it's like, oh, I would never, I would never get breast implants. That's so anti-feminist, but I wanted them. And I was like, it really, you know, honestly, it was like the drag community really giving me permission to embrace some other form you know and go like I don't have to to be an activist I don't have to look this way or to be a feminist I don't have to look this way and so it's been a long time of undoing sort of these ideas I had of gender especially around femme you know what does that mean for a cis woman and um yeah so what is such an interesting answer like that's such a like and thank you so much for considering the question like listeners by this point everybody refers to the questions they received so like you know that we we let our guests pre-screen questions so they have consent over the kind of dialogue that we're going to have which I think is really important but like I love that you gave it that much consideration and kind of considered your 
like history with the idea of gender and what it feels like today, right? Because I think that especially as uh, often cis people just never, especially cis dudes, but like cis people generally never have the invitation to kind of think about that stuff, you know? Right. Well, and I think, you know, of course, gender is performative, right? Like that's something that I have, I have no denial about that. But it's like, how do we embrace how we perform? What does our performance of gender mean to us? And for me, coming out of a marriage in my late 30s, I actually got the opportunity to interrogate things I never thought I would have to, like heteronormativity and what, you know, I think had I stayed married, maybe I wouldn't have had to do that. Um, There's a really great book called Detransition Baby and... I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's the the stories about like a a detransition trans woman who is embroiled in this sort of like um, in relation to a cis woman who he then gets pregnant, but they bring in his past ex who's a trans woman and they talk about having a child together. But what I found really fascinating about the book is just thinking about how even trans persons are performing gender. What are the implications of socialized gender from all perspectives? And I just loved it because it also gave me like a new insight into things that I'd never thought about. And interestingly, the the postscript, like the book is dedicated to, or not postscript, what's that called? This um, epilogue? Ep- well, the dedication. The dedication. book's dedicated. <laughs> sorry, I forgot what it's called. The book is dedicated to um, cis divorced women. And she says, because they also in our position of having to interrogate gender and identity in a, in the same way. And so she said that she actually, the book's by a trans woman. And she said, she looked to divorce women even more than older trans women, because they had sort of gone through this life transition and had to reinvent themselves. And I really related to that. Um, So mutually, you know, I've gotten a lot of inspiration from the trans community, having to rename myself, having to reinvent, you know, and looking to them for this permission to do that, right? And they call it like, you know, dead naming or something, but I feel the same way about, you know, the patriarchal names, you know, that's why I go by Kate Marlena, because I couldn't find a last name that wasn't patriarchal. It's like, okay, everyone oh, like, in my- Is it your dad's name or your husband's name? Exactly. Which one do I want? I don't want either of them. And also, so I took my great grandmother's first name, which was Marlena, instead of a, a, a last name, because I just don't, what am I going to do with that? So that's, yeah. that's actually a really, <laughs> like, you don't even think about it because it's so embedded, but like, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and such a kind of empowering idea of like, actually, who do I want to go into this next chapter as, mm-hmm. right? Um, wow. Yeah. And I feel like also, you know, it's, it's definitely like a, a level of privilege to not have to kind of think about the gender performance, but at the same time, like, I think that often puts it, or at least I'll speak to my experience. Um, as a cis person, a cis identifying person, like I wonder if I'd been born like a decade or two later, if that would be my identity, just because I've never really identified or been able to feel like I can perform femme the right way, you know, mm-hmm. to be kind of socially acceptable. <laughs> so it goes into this kind of like, like, I don't know, just fe- feeling kind of alien a lot of the time or in France, mm-hmm. especially because there's, I don't understand the codes even after like almost a decade of living here. And I wonder what your experience is with this in Berlin. Like, because I don't understand the codes, I feel invisible a lot of the time, especially mm-hmm. as a woman. Um, and I, yeah, like 
the kind of next line of questioning kind of because we'll 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 circle back to your marriage and divorce but um like you like how do you feel like your experience in in Berlin differs from like Paris that you were just in or even like Los Angeles because that's where your kind of origin story is right so I grew up in Seattle but I moved around oh. in the states a lot okay cool. I lived in New York and, <laughs> yes. and I, so yeah the last place I lived was San Francisco um I wanted to just reflect what you said about about codes because so I've been in Berlin 10 years and becoming a parent here like trying to integrate but realizing like I never really would basically not just because my German's bad but it was like (laughs) I actually got to the point where it's like um because I don't understand the code it gave me a lot of freedom um, mm-hmm. because it just made me realize like, I'm never going to assimilate here and not just around like what it means to parent in Germany or what it means to, you know, women here actually don't wear a lot of makeup. Right. And they don't, they're not like LA girls, you know, this is like Berlin. So even the mothers at the Kita, like it's very minimal. Um, and I think that gave me a lot of freedom to just be like, well, fuck it. Like, I don't, I'm not going to be that. So I'll wear fake eyelashes or like, you know, like, and all the women are always asking about my fake boobs. And it's really funny because I don't care. I'll talk about it, but I know that's not really in there. Uh, it's not a cultural norm here. So I, like I said, I've actually found it really liberating to not have to subscribe to some of the cultural norms, you know, of being, not just being in Germany, being in Europe. Um, and, so I would say comparing some of the, you know, you've been to Berlin. It's like, I never thought I could feel at home in a place that's so obviously not my home. And I mm-hmm. think it's because, <laughs> you know, Berlin is very open and and you can be as, it's kind of like New York in that way, right? You can kind of be whoever you want, but I definitely yeah. am not a Berliner and I'm not a German. And so it has this, for me, there's a freedom in that and a homelessness. Yeah. And also I think hard to go back too, because like the longer one stays away or the longer I know I've stayed away from like living in America, the more like kind of uh, disoriented it gets. And also like the weirder it is to kind of look from this side, especially post COVID, like not only with political unrest and shit, but just like being in less kind of contact outside the, not less contact, but being less like in the space right because I know now when I go back to LA I feel like entirely manic <laughs> the entire time I'm there I'm just like I'm not sleeping I'd like non-stop too excited can't like for whatever like a vitamin d overdose I'm just like ecstatic and then it's like this is fucking exhausting and unsustainable like I don't know how on earth I lived here <laughs> high, energy. although that sounds like the best trip I could have ever had. I mean, I don't have that feeling when I go home because I go back to the Midwest and my parents, so my parents live in Milwaukee and I'm always like, oh God, I just, I, I don't, I never fit in there. So I, I never (laughs) felt like, and it's funny because I don't know if you've spent time there, but people in the Midwest are very insular. So they're always like, you know, a lot of people don't leave. Not a lot of people come. It's this, it's, and in some ways it's really nice because once you're in, you're kind of like always part of it. And my friends are like, oh my God, Katie, when are you coming home? And I'm like, I moved in 1999. Like, what are we talking? Like, I'm not, you know, but they're always like, oh my gosh, like, when are you coming back? And you're like, 
memo never but they just but don't thank you for it. asking yeah, it's so cute that they think I'm coming back and I'm like it's not gonna happen well but, and also like again like it gets weirder and weirder right it's like actually I never belonged here what the fuck mm-hmm. yeah I relate to that a lot it becomes it's actually harder for me to go back and I think COVID created a kind of distance like because we couldn't and because I wasn't also getting visitors it really solidified the reality that I don't live there anymore like I'm stuck well I'm stuck here because this is more my home than there and so it created like more distance from my family I think but also for me it gave me more stability somehow um yeah, because you're kind of yeah. forced to be where you are. Like I, you know, for a long time would like kind of make home, like whenever I would go home, I would like stock up on like vitamins and skincare and like the shit I liked, you know, the shit that I like know how to live with. And then like two years here, you stop needing stuff. You know, you're just like, I know how to survive <laughs> in this kind of capitalism as opposed to CBS. <laughs> I do not get Target anymore. And I'm yeah. my own. Just like an extra suitcase for like protein bars. <laughs> um, so um, we met face to face the first time a couple weeks ago in uh, Berlin at a recovery meeting. Um, and you shared a lot about kind of what happened in your marriage when you got sober. And as you mentioned, you're now divorced. And I wanted just to kind of talk about that stuff with you because I don't think it's that like maybe it's an extreme version, but I don't think it's unique to kind of come into recovery with a partner who might not share your, share either your bottom, your alcoholism or your ideology around kind of getting sober. And so like, can you kind of um, give us a, a brief rundown of what your experience was getting sober? Of course. So, I mean, I think any of us who are using, like we're bringing all of our relationships into recovery, right? So regardless of, you know, this the state of our lives like we are entering with I don't want to call it baggage it's just who we are right it's like who we are when we come into recovery and for me um I had come to Berlin I was just going to travel um I mean I had actually just relapsed in San Francisco and I was like I'm going to go to Berlin and like back then I didn't call it a relapse I just like decided to quit drink uh, start drinking again and so I came to Berlin I was just going to party for a couple months do some writing and go back to San Francisco and like I met my now ex-husband we met on a dating app and you know in a lot of ways it was really romantic it was like we fell in love really quickly like I moved in with him within a couple months uh and for me it was like oh I'm moving to Europe so I just like gave away all my stuff packed everything you know that I could and moved to Berlin and we were drinking buddies I mean our from like our first date for the next year was like We'd go out all the time. And you know how that is. It's like, it's nice until it's not. And then we started Mm -hmm. having, I would say, alcohol-related problems, like, within six months. Even, I remember at that time, both of us were like, ooh, we're kind of drinking a lot. Like, let's cut back. But, and I don't know if you've ever gone through this, but every time we'd cut back, the relationship got really tense because Mm -hmm. we didn't have that thing anymore. We didn't have that that stress relief anymore. Like I remember once trying to go to a museum sober with him during that time, and we just like fought the whole time. Like mm-hmm. we didn't have a sober connection, and so um, I got pregnant like a few years later. And I think when I went when I got pregnant, it was like okay, life is going to change. Like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna drink during my pregnancy, but I'm also not gonna be a drunk mom, right? So mm-hmm. I think somewhere in the in my mind, it was like we're on this journey together, like this baby is going to sort of 
cure us of any alcohol yeah, this related. Is, this is how we grow up. Yeah. It was like, okay, next, next phase. Well, I mean, he didn't change, you know, it was during that time, like he was still, um, and I don't want to badmouth him. Like he's on his own path, but my experience of that time was that he was still going out all the time. He was still drinking, still doing drugs. You know, we, um, we like dabbled in cocaine. Like it was just kind of like a weekend thing, but it's enough where <laughs> when your partner's having that lifestyle and you're like home pregnant, like that rift had begun to grow. Yeah. And, um, and I don't know if I mentioned this in the meeting, but he also would, when he drank, get really angry. There's a lot of like rage issues. And so mm. there was a time when I was pregnant where I was scared to come home. And so I remember a friend being like, just get a hotel, like wait till he sobers up. And so I'm like eight months pregnant, like checking in at the Westin, like in Berlin, hiding from him. But I remember even that day being like, okay, this is just a one-time thing, you know, like this isn't going to be what it's like. And, um, you know, I was wrong. You know, he showed up, I remember like brought flowers or the apology and we had, and then I, after the baby was born, I also just, I had to start going to meetings basically. Like when I had the baby, I also wasn't in control the way I wanted to be. Um, mm -hmm. I had one night where um, I blacked out with her and um, I woke up and she was in my bed and it was horrifying because I just thought, um, how is my addiction like stronger than my love, you know, for yeah. this baby? And it was, you know, I, yeah. I, that was the moment, you know. And thank you so much for sharing that because I think that's like A, super vulnerable, but B, like the anticipation that like literally anything like the, you know, the power of a mother's love for their child or like that this thing that is changing your life is going to like somehow get one sober is just like the futility of it is heartbreaking, you know, of just like, fuck, like I thought that this was, this would help. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. like alcoholism is a bad motherfucker, you know, mm -hmm. cunning, baffling, powerful, you know, and That's I didn't insane. know, I just didn't, it was in some ways it was, helpful because it was the first time in my life where I could, I had to admit that I didn't have control because up until that point, it was like, you know, trying to manage my drinking, you know, swearing I'd never do it again. But this moment of like, I could not stay sober for my infant, you know, I couldn't resist, but get drunk on a box wine with a newborn, you know, like that was insane to me. And that's when I realized my own insanity. And so the other crazy thing, though, was that I knew my husband wouldn't want me to get sober. I don't know why I sensed that. I just had this feeling he's going to he's gonna feel like I'm pulling away from him because we both knew that how much alcohol kind of kept us bonded. Yeah. And so I was like, how am I going to tell him? Should I really do this? And I was listening to a lot of podcasts back then, actually. like um, It was funny because I, I was like at home with the baby. I was you know, trying to breastfeed and which I hated. And I was so bored. And so I remember thinking like, oh, I bet alcoholics have good stories. And there's so many <laughs> great, and I was really doing it for the entertainment, you know? Yeah. Um, and there's this really great podcast called um, The Share Podcast um, by Omar Pinto, S-H-A-I-R. I think he's Not renamed it since. <laughs> no, but he's renamed it since. But um man, he had such good episodes. And it was basically shares. It was just like people telling their stories. And I was so compelled by these transformations. I was like, 
they're this way and then they do this thing and they become completely different people. And I was so blown away, not thinking like the magic is actually just getting sober. That's the magic part of that story. Um, But I was, I wrote him and I said, I'm terrified that I'm an alcoholic. I think I need to quit drinking, but I think it'll ruin my marriage. And I, I have still this email I wrote to him and he wrote back and he's like, it doesn't matter. Like you have to do this anyway because your sobriety is more important than this marriage and then and your relationship. And I thought, okay, like I can do this. But I used so for for about a month or two, I actually lied to my husband. And I told him I was going out. Okay, I'm going out with friends. I told him I was going to the bar, but I'd be going to AA meeting. And <laughs> it's like the cutest, like <laughs> the cutest of all the lies. <laughs> yeah, and I would be like, okay, I hope he doesn't find out. You know, I'm like getting sober and um, about a month and a half went by and I was like, you know, I felt strong enough in my decision and I told him and he was, he was angry. He claims later that he was mad that I lied to him, but I really think he sensed this is going to change things. Yeah, this is you know, going to change. It did. Well, and also, I mean, it's like the canary in the coal mine is your, like, fear, to be honest, right? <laughs> it's like, no shit. Yeah. It's not going well, you know? It was but. really hard because also, so my first sponsors, um, you know, this, what is it called? Um, not code, what is, what is it when you're codependent? You go to Al-Anon. Al-Anon. Um, <laughs> so this Our second Al-Anon. favorite program of recovery. <laughs> so many favorites though. Um, <laughs> um, my sponsors were always like, you know, don't leave him like basically focus on yourself right it was like focus Mm -hmm. on your own sobriety and get sober and don't worry about him the problem was I had a lot to worry about I mean I had a newborn I had a husband who was still coming home drunk I was trying to take care of my own sobriety and as much as I would kind of like try to stay in my own lane it was like okay but how do I stay in my own lane when like I had we had a rule that he would if he was coming home drunk I was allowed to lock the bedroom door because I was scared of him coming in because a couple times he had come in drunk, tried to take the baby away, like in a rage. And he knew he was doing that. So he agreed that I could lock him out. Looking back, it was such a crazy arrangement, right? Like, why am I living like this? But I remember thinking, okay, I'm just focusing on my own recovery, you know, hiding in the bedroom with the baby. Like, (laughs) yeah. And like, I did that for three years you know, trying to just stay sober. I was like, I just need to get through this myself. And so I actually tried not to put too much attention on him. Um, But like over time, the relationship was just like becoming harder and harder to maintain. Um, It wasn't just, I'm actually a different person now. Like I got to the point where it's like, my energies were different. My sense of self was different. Like I just became much more um, clear headed and you know, I was stronger. I had more perspective. Like I could assert myself, you know, as like, I was as advertised, you've had the entire psychic change. <laughs> and you're yes, like, Wait, yes. this is not cool. It was like the stronger I got, the more I couldn't live in that reality. And I, I do feel like I tried to bring him into that. I tried to explain myself. I tried to tell him how much pain I was in that he, and, and, I did hear that he tried to go to a meeting once and I think it was too hard for him. And he then told me like, I don't want to get, you know, I'm a functional alcoholic. I'm never going to quit drinking. And I'm like, 
okay, fine. Like that's on the table. So we had a bunch of different rules about when he could drink, how he could drink that would make the marriage work. Because by that time we had two kids. I had a second child um, when I was about two years sober, which looking back is like crazy. But I think it was all part of this, like, I'm going to hold the family together. Mm -hmm. Like, I know I still want a second child. Let's keep trying. But even before my son was born, I was really thinking of leaving. I felt like I was so trapped and I just felt like there was no way to make it work anymore. But I remember going to a meeting. I was like a week from giving birth and telling everyone in the meeting that I was leaving my husband because so many things were happening. I mean, so many things were happening related to his drinking and people came up to me after the meeting. They're like, can you just wait till you have the baby, you know, just wait till you have the baby to move out. And, um, you know, I, I think, I shared so much during that time. You know, I think there were, it was hard to hear because there was different kinds of abuses and just the fact that people were like, oh my God, this chick's like trying to get sober and dealing with this all the time. It was really hard. But um, I have to say in his defense, he did go to, he would come with me to pick up my chips, you know, oh. on its face, <laughs> he would try to show support. I think the problem was like on a deeper level, there was still resentment a lot of um, maybe fear too. There's like, yeah. you know, when, so, when you're with someone who gets sober, like they're holding up a mirror. You can look away, right? You can pretend that they're not holding up a mirror to your own problems, but that doesn't make it go away. And I think actually when he would get drunk, he would say to me, you think you're better than me. You know, you think you're better than me now than you're sober? Like you're still fucked up. And that was always the drunk sort of narrative of like, you are still fucked up. You should be with me. You know, it's like, yeah. you're, you're not better than me because you're sober. Wow. Oof. Yeah. Well, but I think it's also like, I think, you know, it's, it's funny. And until I heard you kind of speak about that, I had kind of blanked out the fact that I was actually in a relationship when I first got sober and my, my then boyfriend was like at my intervention and stuff. And so this idea of like being in your process, like, of getting sober and doing the work and kind of finding out who you were sober. Meanwhile, staying in the partnership is actually like a really, you know, profoundly brave and challenging thing because I, even though it seems it's like between two fears, right. To like actually try and make it work and stick it out. And then, or like my, my particular version, which was kind of very cut and run. I mean, I was like intervened upon. So we, like, I was sent away essentially. And then didn't really have to try and make it work. And in fact, had to like make amends for being such a shitty, like breaker upper, you know, and of course the relationship was like fucking doomed from the start because it was based on a lot of the stuff that you, you know, kind of named. But I mean, and to the point that like, <laughs> like, I think when I was in rehab, this person like took a bunch of acid and mushrooms and like threw all of my personal <laughs> objects into the Hudson river and then called my mom said he was Jesus. <laughs> oh. Bless. Uh, <laughs> like I had forgotten about that part, but um, this idea that like, to actually try and kind of like make it work on occasion, I guess, like I know for not to, not to disclose Rose's story, but she came in and like was a newcomer and her partner was already sober and like they, you know, have a happy and successful relationship. Um, so like, it's possible, even though like everybody was like, this is doomed. Like they made it work because they both worked their fucking asses off. And like, I just can't imagine having the capacity to like, not entire like not entirely bullshit effort you know like if I hadn't literally been shipped across the country 
Mm. Like, I don't know what I would have, how I would have possibly dealt with that situation upon kind of being released into the wild after nine months of, of treatment. Yeah. You know, so I think that like the actually being in the process of relate, trying to hold a relationship together is like, oh, la, la. like that's, that's a gargantuan effort, you know? Well, you make an interesting point just about like, when we get sober, like if you're, for example, if you come in and you're single and you're young, and I only say young because I think younger people have less responsibilities. So if you come in, you don't have children, you know, you can do a lot of self work. And I've seen this with my younger friends who have come in to the program, you know, in their twenties. And I'm like, damn, like you, you know, you can just tell they were had all this time. And, you know, for me, like I was trying to get sober with two babies and a husband and, you know, living in a foreign country. And in some ways that made it harder, but in other ways it made it easier because I didn't have a choice around, you know, getting too self-involved. Like I wasn't Mm -hmm. in that state of like, what am I going to do with my life? Like what, you know, I didn't have a lot of distractions when I had tried to get sober when I was younger I just was like so full of energy slash anxiety. And it was like, I'm going to do everything. You know, it's like you get almost overwhelmed by just this new way of being, right? Like you're free from this thing. And yet it's scary. It's very scary to have that much space in your mind and time and And life. Yeah. It's like, (laughs) like I'm a blank slate. (laughs) Yeah. You have a lot of freedom there. But like I said, I didn't have that. And in some ways it kept me on the path because it was like, I didn't have a lot of room to deviate, to get stuck in my own thoughts and the navel gazing. Like there wasn't time for this, you know? So. Which is kind of remarkable because also reflecting what you said earlier, like burlesque dancing, artist, podcaster, lawyer, <laughs> working with the ACLU. Like it's not like <laughs> your life has been small, you know? It's like, that's a lot of things to kind of like be interested in and accomplish and like kind of express and I don't know whether what what part of that has kind of been within recovery or prior to it or like kind of ongoing, but like <laughs> you're like, I didn't have that much time. I'm like, damn, girl, like <laughs> like well, heroic, heroic extracurriculars. Thank you. But I always say, like, my experience is that alcoholics are not lazy people. Like, no. I don't think <laughs> I'm alone in this sort of hyper uh, achieving sort of like dreamer, you know, artist. Like I think so many of us in recovery have a lot of passions and a lot of interests. And I was just talking about this with a friend yesterday who's in recovery. And you know, this idea that like we're chameleons, right? That we can like go into a room and like kind of shape shift. And we're talking about how there's always this negative uh, connotation around that as though we don't know who we are, as though Mm. we're kind of these lost souls that are just like, we try to fit in wherever we are. And we both were saying like, it's not necessarily the whole truth because we also have a lot of interests. You know, the reason I was into like, could fit into a lot of different groups in high school was because I kind of was into a little bit of all they were doing. Like I kind of liked the theater kids. I kind of liked the punk rock kids. Like I also liked the the jocks and, you know, it wasn't because it's not bullshit. It wasn't, it was like, I actually kind of like a little bit of all they're doing. Why do I have to choose one thing? And so I kind of, I kind of question that idea that we're just lost people who can't find our place. Actually, I think we have a lot going on. I think it's hard to focus because we can be inspired in so many different ways. 
Yeah. And also like add an obsessive personality to that mixture. And I think it can be a little bit like, especially in recovery when you now don't have like 89% of your brain capacity, like devoted to like, <laughs> like finding more drugs and alcohol or recovering from your drugs and alcohol intake, like this idea of uh, like just not enough hours in the day and not like, I know that my ability to say no to things I want to do is very low. And then I'm like, <laughs> like, why am I so tired? It's like, because you've literally done everything this week. Can you please calm down? Yeah, it's not yeah. always good. I mean, I had the same, like you were just listing the stuff I'm doing and it's like, my, in my mind, I'm like, I'm not really doing that enough. And I could be doing this more. And, you know, I, during the pandemic, I started making, like, I started doing more visual art. So painting and collage and like, I'm like, well, why am I not selling more? And, you know, it's like, in my mind, it's never enough. It's never good mm -hmm. enough. You know, and I have, that's always still my work is like, even being a parent, you know, it's like, this is just so consuming. <laughs> it's like, it's enough. You know, I just have to say like, all of it is enough and it's fine, but I don't always feel that way. Yeah. Know? It's hard to kind of swallow that and be like, and I'm not going to like bully myself around for the rest of the week for, you know, that, that one thing that I didn't get perfectly. <laughs> yeah. Well, when I was, um, I had this drinking pattern of, um, cause I did, I went to law school and all that when I was still using and um, I had this pattern, I called it like the three day cycle where it was like, I would work really hard and like bust my ass. And then I would reward myself by like getting drunk. And then I would take a day to be hungover, do nothing, hate myself. Then the next day I would be recovered enough. I would get everything done. I would like do the same thing and be hyper productive. And then I would get wasted that night. So that was my cycle. And yeah. it allowed me to get a lot done, actually, because I would feel so guilty that I would just like hyper perform on the off day. And then I would always need that break. And I don't know if you found this, but when I got sober, I didn't know how to get a break. And it yeah, was like was my hangovers were it's my like hangovers. Yeah. And that was like totally. how I knew how to rest was being hungover. It was the only time I let myself rest. And I think there's a lot of like a lot of people who come into recovery with that, like, inability like the unless it's forced there's no kind of off switch so you know like thank goodness for the steps where we have kind of a prayer and meditation practice built in but even that can feel like another fucking thing to check off you know so how to actually like seek like a respite from mm -hmm. the the mind that is like non-stop you know even if you like there's this level of potential transcendence where you're like I am satisfied I'm proud of myself I did a good job thank you very much thank you God thank you me yeah <laughs> then you're like now what and it's like no how about now you just fucking chill yeah <laughs> like I am exhausting um so <laughs> now about sex yeah. uh can you tell us about the first messages that you received around sex and sexuality yeah so I grew up with a catholic mother so you can and all the blanks there. I mean, sex was uh, really shameful and, you know, we weren't really allowed to, it wasn't like what we talked about was basically like, don't do it. You know, it was like abstinence, which actually is stupid because I think they even knew we were having sex. They just didn't want to know and like mm -hmm. maybe presumed, you know? So I think, yeah, I always had a lot of shame about that, even though I was pretty, I don't know, what do you call it? As a teenager, you know, I was like very curious. Like I had a lot of a high sex drive. And so I 
I hate the word promiscuous, but I don't know what else to say. It was like, I had no, I drank, you know? So I didn't have, mm-hmm. I was curious, but I didn't have a lot of boundaries. And so like mm. with, with my daughter, like my whole intention with her is like, you can have as much sex as you want and with whoever you want, but make sure you really want to do it. You know, like yeah. that's my only kind of lesson for her because that's the one I never got was like, you can do it and it's fun and interesting and can be really amazing, but like, don't do it if you don't want to do it and make sure you're sober enough to make that decision because how can you give your, how can you give consent? How can you possibly give consent when you're using? And um, so unfortunately, like my, from the time I was like 16 through my twenties, you know, like most of the sex I had was when I was drinking on drugs and, um, I could maybe name like five times that it wasn't the case because I didn't know how to have sex sober. My entire relationship with my body and with connecting with people and like letting down that guard or being vulnerable enough to be with someone like required substances. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it's a longer story, you know, because it took like a long time after getting sober to start deconstructing what that was. Totally. Totally, totally. And I mean, I guess to backtrack even from there, like how did drugs and alcohol enter the picture? Like what was the beginning of your drinking and using like? You know, this, I had a really bad sexual experience when I was like 15. And interestingly, I was sober when that happened, but because it was traumatic, um, that was the last time that happened. And um, he, you know, without going into the details, like it was really aggressive really scary. And, um, this guy and I actually, it was funny. We would be the only ones at parties, not drinking. And I remember Mm. we used to talk about it, how we really liked that we weren't drinking when everyone else was. And then he assaulted me. And I think in my mind, I actually associated that with what, that we hadn't been drinking somehow. And I don't know, it's hard to look back on those things. Cause I, it's not like you can say what precipitated what, you know, but when I think of how young we were, like how impressionable we are. Like I still think a lot of the traumas that happened when I was a teenager really set me up for like more alcohol use, you know? Yeah. And, so, and it's not like, okay, I'm an alcoholic cause I had traumatic sexual experiences. I don't think that's true, but I do see some kind of patterns in like when things got worse and, and the escapism that came with using was like, yeah, I don't I mean, know how to deal with this. So disassociation becomes like such exactly. an attractive like lifesaver at a certain point. I think that like a lo- like instead of being like I'm a bad dog for kind of wanting out, it's like no 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 like this was survival. Like this was the wisest choice at the time, mm-hmm. or the only one that we had options for, uh, you know available for. And just for the I think because we're I don't know for me like it was relief right like alcohol was relief from my anxiety, pain, depression, trauma, fear, like all these things that I didn't want to feel. And then all of a sudden you get this bottle of relief and escape and fun. And I didn't have to worry so much, you know? So I guess the way, you know, through my, through my twenties, I would say like, I mean, you get it, you know, call like, it's like, that becomes the way of being, that becomes the way of not feeling. And that becomes how to connect with people. I think one of the 
biggest reasons I drank was to feel that sense of connection and belonging. And that was even more heightened in sex, right? That like, okay, we like really love each other. I just found out, I'm sure you know this, but like, you know, the reason that we get horny when we're drinking is because of the our body like is dropping in serotonin and like having oh, I did sex. Not know that. Yeah, that like having sex is a way to for your body to up its serotonin, have a serotonin wow. release. I had no idea, but it makes sense because when I get depressed, I also get horny. When I miss my my antidepressant pill, I also get more horny. So I'm like, okay, so actually this is all connected, right? That we would become more open to it, not just because of boundaries, but physiologically we need it to feel better. Connection and yeah, Mm -hmm. that really makes a lot of sense. I mean, and also I think that like, especially, you know, you're talking about being a pretty young kid kind of like getting into this stuff. And I think that like, just as somebody who's started using not not crazy early but early early enough to really take a jackhammer to my prefrontal cortex that like (laughs) as adults we're like why is this so hard like feeling feelings or being in relationships or like having like being present and it's like oh because like I totally like based all of those brain maps like all of my neurological pathways are like were chemically bound kind of you know Mm -hmm. and so it's all it is relearning like what they say about like when you start drinking you stop kind of growing and getting kind of stuck in an adolescent phase like that being kind of a a real thing and that's it's terrifying too to be like you know I started drinking when I was 14 and quit when I was 35 and it's like I did feel like that stunted person you know and like like you said having to relearn like naming emotions and like actually sitting with these uncomfortable feelings. And I remember the first time, like I got a cold sober and I was like, what the fuck? What is this? Like, how am I supposed to have this cold? Cause I used how to, do I live. <laughs> like this is not, you know, I'm like, I would just drink through it, you know? Cause I remember thinking like, I don't remember feeling this bad. And it was always like, because I was in my life. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, and also I think because like the 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 baseline was so shitty that then when you start to get sober and actually like have a you know feel okay most of the time because you're not recovering from a hangover, <laughs> that like it's a real shock to be like, what do you mean I get sick and they don't give me a parade every day of my life? <laughs> so you know we touched briefly on how you got sober um, and kind of what that process was like, but. I'm curious as to, you know, like the, the question on, on the list of questions is how did the relationship with sex and sexuality change when you got sober? But I mean, I guess it's kind of more like what, what, how did it evolve post kind of marriage? Because that's, you know, like you, you were a new mom, you were early in recovery. You're like, I have to leave this relationship. Like what, how did it unfold from there? Well, it actually, I mean, my processing like had, was kind of bound up in the marriage because I mean, I was sober three years before I left, maybe even four. And when we were married, you know, there were expectations of sex. Mm -hmm. And at first I thought, oh, I don't want to have sex because I just had a baby. I thought that's really what it was. But then it was like, but actually I don't have sex because I'm married to someone who's mean to me and kind of abusive. And there was like, even this, story in the marriage for a while that like I was fucked up I needed to go to sex therapy because 
I had a problem and he was fine. And so <laughs> I kind of was like, okay, oh. I, yeah, I'm, you know, I need to get fixed. You know, here's another problem of mine. And, um, and you, you know, had bought into the narrative because this is like, you're because like, because oh, I didn't yes. feel like why yeah. could I used to be able to fuck this guy? Like I had two kids with him. Why can I not fuck him? What's mm-hmm. wrong with me? Um, and so it's really hard to say, like, in my case, how much of that was getting sober? How much of that was, you know, having a child come through my vagina? How much of that, because I also had some scarring and, you know, there were some physical things that were different. And then how much of it was being in an abusive marriage where I did not want to have sex anymore? Um, I guess the really powerful thing that happened was like when I did finally leave, um, I had this like whole new sense of self. I, and I left actually right before Corona started. So I moved out like January 1st, 2020, got my new place. Yeah. (laughs) And it was like, and then, you know, Corona happened and I was laughing because I'm like, oh my God, I'm like single again. And now I can't even go on a date because of Corona. So I remember when the, when I was like, okay, when this lockdown ends, like I'm getting on Tinder and um, I actually had met this guy and looking back, it was kind of a sex date, but it was like, you know, there was like, it was romantic. Like he was really cute, really nice. And I remember being really scared because I'm like, I haven't had sex sober with a new person. Mm. I mean, I hadn't had sex with a new person in 10 years, but I also had it, or sorry, eight years, but I also hadn't really had sober sex that was nice. Like I was really nervous and it was Mm. cool because it was amazing. Like he was so nice and gentle. And I thought, oh my God, like I, I do like sex. Like I was really excited. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, I am still into sex. Like it was really exciting because I thought it was gone and I thought it was gone for all those other reasons. It's gone. Cause I, you know, had a kid it's gone. Cause I'm sober. I don't know how to do this. And it was like, I think a lot of it was, I just didn't want to have sex with my ex. It was, our marriage wasn't working and I couldn't do it anymore in those conditions. And to be able to like, feel like, okay, I'm, I'm healing, but like in a new way, I have a different kind of sexuality that is more empowered. That isn't that I don't need alcohol to do this. That was that's crazy. So beautiful. Yeah. Wow. You gave me goosebumps. Like, <laughs> cause I think that like a lot of this podcast is about that, you know, about having like kind of so many of us come into recovery, never having had sober sex, or even like after having kind of long-term sobriety are still kind of like who, it's, I think it's very easy to kind of get moralistic in a kind of Judeo-Christian, like Abrahamic tradition way about sexuality in recovery. If uh, I, I know that was at least my experience, I'll speak for myself. And so this idea of being like, wait, like if I am indeed kind of living on a spiritual path as a result of like doing this work, then like, why should my sex and my kind of embodiment of my sexuality be excluded from that like mm-hmm. do I really fucking believe in a higher power that's like yes all of you accept that part <laughs> that yes. part has to stay outside yeah. you know <laughs> so yeah. it's, I think it's really hopeful to kind of be like fuck like we can have ongoing and new experiences in recovery with sex and sexuality and like as as part of this experience sober that it can be really beautiful and liberating and exciting and fun and like freaky and great <laughs> Well, well, I think I told you this in the in the in person meeting that I had actually met you at an online meeting first, and and sex came up in that meeting, and I think you were chairing or something because I had said like, what am I supposed to do? Like, 
bring sex or bring God into the bedroom. And you were like, actually, (laughs) and I I remember just looking, it was like, you were muted, but I saw your face and you were like, "Mm?" (laughs) like shrugging your shoulders or something. I'm like, Ooh, maybe that's, maybe she's has a point. You're like, what would that look like? Right. What does spiritual sex look like and feel like? And how does having a strong connection to my higher power or my spiritual self relate to sex? How do I be that? And for me, that also means being authentic, being honest, being like powerful in my body and not feeling scared to say no and not people pleasing and like all these things that we learn about how to be sober, like also apply to this, right? Like how can we take all those tools, right? And apply it to sex. I think romantic relationships and sex, like to me, this is sort of the deeper, much more deeper, like work. Like I think I mentioned, I'm in the sex and love addicts. I'm not, what is it called? Slaw. Like Slaw. I, call it Slaw. <laughs> I mean, that program for me has been like really enlightening because it just has like, so I've been sober six and a half years and like I started that last year and it's just like cracked open so much for me around just self-worth and value and like how to, how to be in relationship, you know, and that's all really new for me trying to figure this part out. Like I'm single now and I actually was just crying this morning because I am kind of seeing like a bunch of different people, but like, I don't know, none of them are that exciting to me and it's nothing wrong with them. I'm just like, eh, like mm-hmm. I don't feel like any of them are offering like a long-term thing or something I really want to invest in. And so right now I'm at a place where I'm like, can I give myself sexually? Do I want to give myself any of my resources, like my time, my energy, like, do I want to be giving that away for fun, for this experience? Like I have a lot of questions around Mm. how to invest my sexual energy. And um, that's something that is a new sort of question because when I, you know, can you still hear me? Yeah. Yes. Can you hear me? Okay. You froze. Oh, now yeah, I, we I are here. <laughs> hmm. I got you. I've heard everything. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so before the internet so rudely cut us off, um, we were kind of talking about like discovering uh, like a new connection to sexuality in in recovery, and not only at, like in new recovery, but also kind of within you know longer term sobriety. And it sounds like you're having a good time. Um, I'm having a confused well I think what I had said before is that I like I'm struggling with um, how to invest my sexual energy and like this actually is something kind of goes back to what we were talking earlier with like um, heteronormativity and going through divorce and and being able to be at a place in my life where I can deconstruct um, some of these norms around sex and if I had stayed married, like I wouldn't be in a position to do that. Right. And so I think for me, it's not just interrogating the lessons I had as a child around sex or the expectations I had in a marriage around sex, but like also relationships like, okay, in a heteronormative world, there's like the relationship elevator where you like 
mm. date and then you get serious and then you move in together and then maybe you get married and have a kid, you know, and like all that's gone for me, you know, I don't like, I already did it, you know, I have to kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, but what does that look like? But uh, you were saying like, you're kind of off the relationship elevator. And when it comes to kind of like the assumed path that we take, and I think also, you know, recovery, there's this idea like of a merry-go-round that gets like tighter and tighter, like the deeper we get into our disease, Mm -hmm. you know? And then like, once you get sober, I think like you basically blow up the (laughs) merry-go-round and like, you're kind of flung into like something that's not your plan, you know, that's like really about surrendering to like the plan of a higher power. And of course, like it would be ridiculous to assume that relationships and sexuality and like building families were like not included in that explosion, you know, that like, in fact, now that's all that shit's off the table. So it's like, if I do, you know, subscribe to the belief in a higher power or even just a higher self, like, what does that part want? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Which is so exciting. So, I mean, I guess that kind of is actually one of the few very graceful sober sex transitions, like pivots <laughs> into the question of a sex ideal. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm not sure if that's kind of part of your your recovery in the past, but this idea of like, in, in the fourth step, it talks about creating a sane and sound sex ideal for our future sex life of like who we want to be in a partnership or romantic relationship or kind of plural romantic relationships like what does that look like when we're single what does that look like when we're dating or in like a more long-term commitment uh I'm curious if you you have a sex ideal that you're working with today yeah I mean it's a it's an interesting question because when I did my four step with my first sponsor like I was married and so I don't even remember if we did it and not I don't think that was intentional I think maybe it was like a lot of people yeah, don't, I don't remember it's very we, often I mean, overlooked they like think it's theoretical I'm like no you write it down <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've been I've been through different sponsors, and I'm also doing the um, Sex and Love program, so I've done this. So cool. um, but I have to be honest; like, it's really a struggle because there's things I've written down right around um, how I want to feel. Right? What would a, a a romantic ideal feel like? Right? Not just oh, mm. this person is going to be you know, loving and supportive and emotionally available and, um, you know, some other things on that list, but also like, what would that feel like? That was a suggestion I had, which I really liked because it kind of made it less about who the other person was and more looking at ourselves and how we want to feel right. Totally. For me, that is safe, secure, trusted, trusting, trusted, right? Like all these things, But um, I think what I struggle with now is like, I haven't had that. And I don't think it means it's not available to me. Like I try to avoid this scarcity mindset, but you know, I'm 41. Like I've had a lot of really shitty relationships. I've, I feel, I started, I was crying this morning because I was talking to another friend in the program. I was just like, I don't feel like I'm a dysfunctional, unloving, oh shit. And I think in SLAW, sometimes I think there's this dangerous narrative in AA too. I, I question some of these people who are like, you know, this narrative of like, I'm a fucked up alcoholic, like oh, my yeah, mind. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, like. I love that you're speaking to that. Yes. It's really, <laughs> Go off. it's really annoying. Me. And then I was in a meeting once, it was a women's meeting in this, in this girl who I know has a lot of time, but she's like, I don't trust myself with any decisions. Like I, my mind is a dangerous place. So I ask my sponsor everything. And I remember just thinking like, 
this is not recovery to me, like not trusting myself, like not trusting my own instincts, like having to ask a sponsor about your decisions. Like that's not what I want. And, um, so in, in like slaw recovery, you know, it's the same thing as like, can I be trusted? How do I trust myself? Mm -hmm. How can I make sure that like, when I'm making choices around sex and love, that it's not coming from a, sad, scared, dysfunctional place. But I think we have to be careful of the narratives that come with recovery because we're coming in when maybe we're not in a good place, right? We're coming in when we need help. We're coming in when we're uncertain. That doesn't mean we're stuck there. It doesn't mean that's where we lie, that like we are always in this place of uncertainty, confusion, and fucked upness. You know, it's like, that's not recovery. And I have a problem sometimes with the SLA meetings because I don't hear recovery the same way I do in AA where people are like, Mm. you know, what it was like, what happened, what I'm like now. You hear this transformative story and that's why I came into recovery. I told you, it was like, I was so drawn to these stories of transformation. What is a struggle in SLAW is that you don't hear it. I don't know what recovery looks like because what you hear is a Mm. lot of like, I haven't had sex in six years and like, I've never, you know, like people, I don't know what, recovery looks like necessarily that doesn't mean people aren't mm-hmm. recovered I don't think the stories are as clear it's not as clear mm-hmm. cut what recovery looks yeah it's like. not quite as black and white as like I was drinking myself to death and now I do not drink like yeah it's kind of like what do you want and I'm asking myself that what what like this friend of mine who's also in the program like we're both divorced we're both single moms we're like I don't know if I want to live with someone again like I don't know if I want my finances entangled again I don't know if I want to be reliant on someone that way. And I don't know if that's bad or good. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I mean, maybe it's not like, maybe there's no kind of value judgment. Maybe it's like, okay to want what you want. Right. It's true. But you, but there's still this, like, where is this coming from? Where is Mm -hmm. my authenticity in that? Whereas, you know, I talked with my sponsor a lot about like, when is it fear, like anxiety? And when is it your gut instinct? Right. Like, because we always say like, they can feel very similar. This is like discomfort. Yeah. Your gut can be saying no. <laughs> is it intuition? Yeah. Like, <laughs> or is it my just anxiety? Exactly. Yeah. Is it intuition or anxiety? And uh, your gut well, can be telling you something that is also fear-based. Totally. Totally. And I mean, I think that there is like something that's been really interesting, especially in the kind of more recent episodes that we've been doing. We've been talking to a lot of like <laughs> very exciting young people who are like, poly or like relationship anarchists or even people who are kind of like in uh ds dynamics who are like i call her myself like i my primary relationship is me yeah Yeah. (laughs) and and like and also that 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 means that the kind of romantic part one-on-one partnership is like a decentralized role which I think is like, that's not necessarily my experience at the moment, but I think it's a really interesting thing to kind of like explode this weird metaphor, explode the merry-go-round further of being like, actually, like, what would it look like if I put the same emphasis and value on like my, the emotional intimacy of my friendships and like my, if I brought that level of emotional intimacy into my sexual relationships, even if they're not necessarily long-term partnerships, if that felt safe and good, like, I think, it's a really interesting moment to live through where there, where it seems like for the first time there's kind of more on offer than just like heteronormative white picket fence, Labrador, yes, <laughs> two children. Um, like 
ideas of you know like healthy relationship mm-hmm. right and 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 like you said like and can recovery kind of encompass that in a way that's not like I'm suffering and insane forever and I can't trust myself that but they're like actually this feels good and I'm going to trust it and see how it feels and if it's not working mm-hmm. I can make a different choice like <laughs> yeah you know and your listeners can't see me but I'm nodding my head because um one of the books that really helped me was all about love by bell hooks and oh we love a bell hook yeah (laughs) (laughs) but like this idea of love coming in all forms and not just like it's like spiritual love uh friendship love self-love community love like being able to uh feel and manifest all these different forms of love so that we are not so reliant on romantic love or feeling that's the only way to be connected and fulfilled and have value right it's like Especially as women, I think that's really important. Yes, and and I think you know she's obviously like a feminist. Like that was kind of the the to me one of the primary messages of that book was like as women, why are we so hooked into this? You know, sorry, no pun intended. You know, why are we <laughs> why are we um, so attached to the the appreciation and attachment to a man, right? Um, yeah. and well, or that being the source of my value yeah. and my worth is like this person's validation. Well, cause like, obviously in the past that that was like socially the way it was set up, like we couldn't have bank accounts yeah, <laughs> or jobs. Exactly. Like, <laughs> what a fucking real. nightmare. Yeah. Ah, what the fuck? And body autonomy. And that's coming back anyway. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, kind of briefly, um, I'm curious is like, because as we mentioned before, you are a very impressive multi-hyphenate. And I was curious if like within the diverse practices that you engage in, if, if they're informed by like a, your recovery or b your sexuality. Uh, my work stuff or my projects. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say all of them are informed. Um, not by, so I'll start with recovery. You know, like I got into my narrative therapy work um, after recovery, although it stems from my work, I studied um, anthropology and was getting a PhD in literature. And so I've always had this sort of interest in storytelling and narrative Uh, through recovery, I became more interested in just like the healing power of that. And so Mm -hmm. that work is a sort of combined interest in like social politics narrative on the individual level, cultural family level, societal levels, like looking at the ways that our stories inform our sense of self and using the understanding of these narratives to be, to deconstruct them, right? And to find ways of healing through understanding and deconstruction. Um, Amazing. And yeah, that's so sick. I want to talk to you all about, I would like you to do a round two where we just talk about narrative therapy. Oh, good. And I'm actually, I was doing private practice, but I'm moving more into like group therapy. And so I want to um, just work in different communities. So that might be new mothers, uh, the LGBTQ community having an interest in like, again, what I was saying about even the trans community, like understanding how these inherited versions of identity keep us stuck, right? And so for me, of course, this stems from my work, even in becoming a recovered person, because think about the narratives we have of alcoholism. What is this word alcoholic? And how does the construction of this word actually impede recovery? I think 
for me, it Mm -hmm. kept me held back because of family stories that I carried with me about alcoholic grandparents and things like this. So learning to even interrogate language, right. In healing. And so, um, so also with my artwork, you know, it's like, I think I became a visual artist because I started feeling that like the language of narratives was becoming too limited, right? Like Mm. actually having given birth, right? It was like, I can't actually explain this in words. Like I started in recovery having experiences that weren't, that I wasn't able to articulate, that didn't have a linguistic basis, that it was like, I needed to access something more transcendent, maybe more visual and like spiritual in some ways. And so I was able to translate that through my visual art in a way that I couldn't do with my writing. Um, That's so awesome. And it's so trippy. <laughs> yeah. Like I think it was like, Oh wait, there's this other way of communicating. And so, and with the burlesque, it was very similar. It was like, here's this art form that is like an embodiment, right. Of like self and sexuality and storytelling and having it all come together in this very material form. And I think for me, it was also like, I need to learn how to claim myself and my space and my body in like a material way, not in a transcendent intellectual. I'm just going to think about it. Like grounded. Yes. But just be like, like, look at me. I am here. I am a body. I am a human. And that is okay. Right. And that is actually something to embrace. And the sexuality is part of that. Right. It's like not just in the performance of sexuality or femininity, but in the actual embodiment of my erotic. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. That's such a beautiful answer. (laughs) And also, I mean, I'd like, I think all of these kind of like what you're weaving in all of those different areas is super interesting. Like each, each on its own path is really like fascinating. So we'd love to, we'd love to have you back to talk about this more just because I enjoy talking to you. Um, Yeah. yeah. Well, it's fun to talk with someone who gets it because I think on paper it can be a bit disjointed, but I think when you see them all connected through a spiritual artistic, you know, there is this yeah, storytelling exactly yeah. there's a way that like it is all related for sure like indubitably <laughs> um so we we like to close with a lightning round Ooh. don't think too hard just let it flow uh what is we keep it sort of easy <laughs> what is the last book or tv show that you've recently consumed and loved shit this is so embarrassing because i i think oh my god books what have i read or tv can you edit my pause right now? Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm reading this book. Let me, I'm just trying to remember the title. Ah, okay. I mean, like, no judgment. No, I no, no. It's just because I'm vampire. What am I reading? <laughs> it's just been such a, like, weird summer. We're like, um, well, I have this thing with books where I'm, I'm reading, like, six at a time. And I keep, like, going back. Because I love self-help books. But I also love a good novel um, but I'm reading right now uh, Women Who Run With The Wolves which is Ooh, Cassandra what's her name that one anyway yes highly recommended it's oh. come ha- it's, it's, in terms of <laughs> narratives it's really fascinating oh my god so. it's blowing my mind like I actually want to just like deconstruct some of it on my podcast and just talk about just some passages because yeah it's so what I'm into like and also what we're talking about just like narratives of self and empowerment and the and the body you know and as women how we can become so detached right and I think as women who have gone through sobriety like 
it's such a important part of getting sober is being re-embodied with ourselves and being able to be in our bodies in a way. And I think, yeah, this book was, has just like been really profound for me. I actually That's wish. so yeah. awesome. And such a great plug, like highly recommended. You know that you, you know that there will be no show notes. listeners. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to, if you want to read it, take, take down the note. Should, I, Google, run with wolves. should I look up the, t- the author? Oh, not at all. Okay. No, they can Google, okay. it. <laughs> we Google that, people. Um, and oh my God, television. I just like, sh- I am like such a like smutty TV watcher. Like, but I do really like the Ozarks. That was when I got really hooked on. Did you watch it? I watched the first season. Yeah. It made me too anxious. Well, I was, my, I recommended it to my friend. He's like, oh my God, there's always like someone dying and you never know what's going to happen next. And it's like the, the storytelling to me was like really brilliant because they were so good at just like always coming up with a new, uh, there was just always like a new climax, like always a new struggle and like conflict and this character. Non-stop anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> but Ozark is a good plug I mean like I should use it as my train show so I have something to totally like disassociate from reality on many hours of of well the other one I've been watching maybe you'll appreciate this is like Selling Sunset which is such trash (laughs) it is such trash but I'm like I'm like I have this little fantasy like moving to LA and like every time I watch that show I'm like I think I kind of I think I kind of belong there, even though it's like totally unrelatable <laughs> to me, but I'm like, I need one of these houses. Like this looks like something for me. <laughs> like I need this private pool in my bedroom. No, this show <laughs> makes me feel like crap because I live in Berlin and like this trash apartment, but yeah, it's like, yeah. So those are like, I mean, honestly, I see your, I see your apartment behind you. It's beautiful. Oh, thank you. So many windows, so many plants. <laughs> Very impressed. I just have like a lot of, I'm in a cave with a laundry room. Anyway. Um, what helps you, oh, uh, what helps you calm down when you are anxious? So because I have anxiety and I'm a sober person, like this is something I have to work on regularly. So I think any, um, Actually, I'm sure you've heard of this, this rain meditation by Tara Brock. Oh, we love Tara Brock. Yeah. I mean, she changed my life. Like I found her when I first got sober and there were days where it was like, it was the only thing that helped me. Um, she really changed the way I related to my body, you know, my um, thinking patterns, how I saw myself. So I do that meditation regularly. Um it's even one that like, I like because you can extend it. It can be, you know, a 20, 25 minute meditation, or it can be like something you do on the train when you're just like, okay, recognize, allow, investigate. You know, I feel like I teach that to my clients because I think it's like one of the most uh, practical and like really immediately effective uh, solutions, you know. And yes, and Tara Brock is just such like the best, even though her anecdotes are <laughs> endlessly repeated. <laughs> like, yes, Tara, we know about your poodles. Um, <laughs> but yes, rain, that's awesome. If anybody's unaware of uh, the rain meditation, again, Googleable, check it out. Yes, yeah, it's all over uh, YouTube. There's some good versions of it. Yeah, totally. Um, what turns you on? And it can be like creatively and intellectually, or it can be sexually and physically. Um, I'm going to give two answers. Cause I feel like for me, it's like one, anything when I make something like I'm just super alive. It could be even when I record a podcast or when I write a poem or anything that kind of, I don't know, just makes me feel like I'm connecting to that. 
But um, I also want to mention something like just sexual because I realized like it's so important for me to like be with somebody who has emotions. Like it sounds so simple, but like I've been dating these guys who like have no emotional awareness. They're German. What's that? <laughs> I said they're German. That's part of it, honestly. But I'm just like, I I don't know. I think it's something that's been missing for me, you know, is just having like someone who has emotional awareness. And like, yeah, I, I think of that such a turn on when you can have conversations where people are like naming their emotions, reflecting your emotions back, like having conversations about how we feel. Like I, it seems so obvious when you're, cause you know what it is? Like I'm spend a lot of time talking to women who do this so easily. And this is such a gender stereotype I know, but it's just been my experience lately, particularly with German men. Yeah. Where it's just like, you know, like any emotional words, like, yeah. Name a feeling. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> any feeling. I was dating this guy and we had gone through a breakup and, and we were kind of trying to share and like reconnect. And I was like, well, how are you feeling? And, and he's in the program. So he, this is like spiritual bypassing, you know, and he's like, I'm just feeling like really grateful. And I'm like, grateful is not an emotion. Like, right. <laughs> like you're just talking. You're just talking. It's not a feeling. <laughs> <laughs> that's so accurate it's amazing I love that you're like that's not a feeling I said that to him like that's not a feeling like access some feelings please <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, finally what do you love do I love um, so I'm just talking about my tinder profile because I'm like well, there's something there's some question on there like and it's like my favorite things, I always put like words, art, and um, people. It's like, I just love like speaking and connecting and art. Yeah. But I feel like it's all related. You know, it's all about like connection for me. Yeah. I love that. And where, speaking of connection, where can we find you on the World Wide Web? Yeah. So I have a lot of websites. I'll try to like keep them simple. So my like all of my work is at katemarlena.com. And then uh, you can follow my podcast at about face and on Instagram, it's Kate underscore Marlena underscore love or at katemarlena.art. That's where I have my digital collage and painting. I think that's everything. There's probably some old websites somewhere lingering, but I think that's everything. Amazing. Okay, okay, so cool. So thank you so much. Hopefully it did not like lose the last 23 minutes because they were delightful. And you are such a pleasure to have on the podcast. Thank you so much, Kate. It's really nice getting to know you better. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad we got to connect. And yeah, let's do it again. I would love that. 